Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I'm your host, Marsha Brownlee. The Artemis community understands that as hunters and anglers, we have a responsibility to actively engage in the conservation of our lands, waters, and wildlife. With that in mind, each year, the Artemis Podcast delves into a special series focusing on a specific conservation issue. Our goal is to dig into the complexity, deepen our understanding, and help spur conversation. This year, our series is about climate change. If we all take a minute to think about our time in the woods and on the water, if we take time to think about our experience, we can't deny that we are seeing drastic changes. Changes in temperature, changes in water levels, changes in habitat quality, and changes in the number and distribution of game. We are seeing changes in our hunting and fishing seasons, and it's impacting us and our communities. In this series, we talk to scientists, conservationists, and leaders from across the country and ask them questions related to climate change to deepen our understanding of what's happening, what's being done about it, and where we can contribute. We're looking forward to digging in, and we thank you for joining us for the Artemis Climate Series. Hey everyone, thanks so much for joining us for the first episode in the Artemis Climate Series. Our co-host today is Ashley Chance. Hi, Ashley. Hello. How you doing? I am doing excellent. Um, you moved recently. Very recently, yep. We've been here for a week and two days, maybe. It seems like just two days, but... Moving in hunting season feels like a brave move <sighs> to do. I've had to make some sacrifices. I sincerely doubt that I will be shooting my bow at a living animal this year, but yeah. I will be going out with a rifle on Saturday. Nice. Good. Um, Whitetail? Yes. Yep. Cool. Um, and I was joking but at the top of the podcast before we started recording that you can tell that the, the walls and the floor are bare around you. <laughs> you should <laughs> surround yourself with, uh, with boxes. Go sit yes. in the garage in the midst of all those boxes. That's a good idea. That is one thing our garage would be good for at this moment. The only it's, thing. Sounds cold, though. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, uh, congratulations on the move. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and we will introduce our guest today. I'm very excited to have Madison Easley on the podcast. Hi, Madison. Hi. How's it going, Marcia and Ashley? It's going great. How are you? I am doing well. We got some rain here in California, which we need. So I am very happy seeing grass grow as we speak. Oh, there's no grass growing in Montana. <laughs> Different world. <laughs> I'm, I'm living vicariously through the sunshine that you just described. And just to further that vicarious living, what, what temperature is it where you are? It's probably about 62-ish. Mm. Yeah. That sounds nice. Yeah. It's not that here. And in fact, this is the time of year where it gets cold and I have to turn off the heater in order to record the podcast because it's too much background noise. So just so you know, I am wrapped in like three blankets and holding a hot cup of tea. Um, <laughs> it's going to oh be good. Oh my gosh. I am sorry. That's all right. We'll make two. That's some dedication. Wow. <laughs> well, it's, it just speaks to my excitement for these conversations that we're delving into today. Um Let's let's go ahead and dive in. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are? Absolutely. Yeah. Th thank you for inviting me to to join you today and and talk about climate and wildlife and hunting and all these important things and 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 subjects. Um, so, 
I am a partner biologist with Point Blue Conservation Science based in California. Um, I, we, I work closely with the USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service as well, which is a federal department. Um, and then a little bit of background on who I am as a person. I am currently sitting in my home in Nevada City, which is in California. It's in the north central Sierra Nevada mountains um, mm. at an elevation of about 3,000 feet. And I'm on my home ranch where I am sixth generation to be on this land um, and so grateful that I was able to grow up in a place where I lived close to the land. Um, but I do want to acknowledge and recognize that this place and these lands were steward stewarded uh, for thousands of years prior to um, to my family and other other settlers by the Nisenan peoples. Um, they they lived on these lands, lived close to these lands, hunted these lands, used fire on these lands for for generations. Um, but yeah, more about me. I. Uh, I have been a hunter and been involved in fishing my as long as I can remember. Um, I was fortunate to grow up in a hunting family, and my dad would frequently take me along, and um, it inspired just an appreciation and curiosity of the natural world and all things wild, wild places, wild animals. Um, and getting out on the land to to not just be an observer, but be a participant in in the ecosystem. Oh wow! I would love it if you could start us off by telling a story of one of your favorite memories from being in the field as a hunter. Yeah. Okay. So favorite story hunting. Um, I. I got the opportunity last year to go to Alaska and hunt caribou. Um, wow. And it, yeah, it was, it was totally wild and different than um, any other style and species that I'd hunted previously. So um, just, I, I was unsuccessful. I did not fill a tag. I never even took a shot at, at a caribou, but it was definitely a transformative experience and it was in a totally different ecosystem. The tundra is thriving with life. You, you wouldn't, um, I guess I didn't think knowing very little about being up there that it would be um, so diverse and uh, yeah, just such an interesting place. Um, the people are the, the other hunters that we were with were also very wild. Um, it was different. Than... People suited to the place, huh? Yes. Yeah. Have, have you guys ever hunted um, in the Steez? No. Along the Steez Highway? No. no. Oh, hashtag life dreams. Yep. Right there with you. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. It was, it was nuts. Um, 
but I mean the caribou I definitely highly recommend caribou hunting I don't know that I'd go back to the steeds. <laughs> there was just a, a lot of people but it was it was really cool um so that was one of my favorite it was just a new experience and and different definitely outside my typical comfort zone um and then another favorite story is um taking my nephew turkey hunting for the first time to harvest his first tom and he was thrilled and i i was probably even more excited <laughs> to um awesome. help him and and yeah get him comfortable in the field and um yeah it was definitely a bonding moment and one where it was right before thanksgiving as oh, as perfect in the place that we're at now yeah so we were able to enjoy uh the turkey the next day on thanksgiving Wow. See, that's the dream. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. How old was he? Uh, he was 14. Nice. Yeah. Um, you mentioned when you talked about caribou hunting, how it was different than other species that you've hunted before. Can you paint us a picture of that? Because I love, I love how each species is so different when when you're pursuing them as a hunter and I would love to hear a little bit more about what that means for caribou yeah so caribou um were very flighty and they never seemed to stop moving um and the ton the tundra of where we were hunting it's wide open space and it feels like you can see for tens of miles um and it's interesting, you'd, you'd look out across these vast open expanses and not see any animals. And then all of a sudden, there'd be one or several caribou just running across. And I mean, I imagine part of that uh, flightiness was because there was lots of hunters and it was opening weekend. But um, yeah, the caribou are weren't as large as I thought either. Um, and uh but but other compared to other species so most of my time hunting has been in california specifically northern california and predominantly big game um mostly black tail some mule deer um and then also bear black bear i also hunt turkeys i don't do a ton of waterfowl hunting um some upland bird some quail um and then I've hunted elk in Colorado. So, so it is um, like, I will never, never cease to um, be, be surprised by what I don't know. <laughs> like I've spent, I've spent my whole life, I feel like hunting deer, but every season I, I feel like, man, I recognize that I am a constant learner and um that these animals and the places they call home are constantly changing and um i will always be in a state of adaptation <laughs> to try to um pursue them yeah that was beautiful thanks i just having yeah i always love hearing some of the specifics about the landscape and what it's like to pursue different species just because I'm a very visual speaker. And so hearing you talk about the caribou, um, especially when we're talking about a podcast, which is a 
you know, storytelling platform, it's lovely to just feel like you're in a place. So thank you for taking us there. I love what you said about feeling like every year you go out and learn something new. I think any hunter worth their salt would agree with that. And I think that's a big part of the reason why people keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, um, there's nothing else like it. There's nothing else that I feel like provides quite the same intimacy and connection to the land and place. And it offers a unique lens and perspective of seeing and experiencing other living things. And um, yeah, you, you get this, I guess, just super intimate connection with, with place. And um, I, yeah, it, it's very humbling for me every year because I <laughs> constantly am making mistakes, but um, recognizing that I'm making those mistakes and then also, um, yeah, yeah, having some humble humility towards other animals. Like humans tend to think that we are a superior race and, you know, we have these big, large brains, but all the animals that are here with us have also evolved. And um, yeah, I just have immense respect for um, the, the creatures that I hunt and that uh, also are in these, these habitats with us. Um, yeah, not trying to go all hippie or anything, but <laughs> it's it, it just like when I'm out there in the field, like these, these are some of the, um, the uh, yeah, the, the sentiments that I'm feeling. <laughs> yeah. No, I second that respect for the animal that we're pursuing. And I don't think that I could be a hunter if I didn't have that respect. Um, It would just feel not good. Um, So I'm right there with you. And and whatever, go hunter hippies. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yes, we can have both in us, right? Yep. Uh. Thank you so much for that story and for telling us a little bit about your background as a hunter. Can you, let's dive into the topic at hand. Give us an overview of the work you do at Point Blue. Sure. Yeah. So Point Blue Conservation Science um, is based in Petaluma and it was previously Point Reyes Bird Observatory. So birds and monitoring birds and collecting science on birds are definitely at the heart of the organization. But my position within Point Blue is as a working lands partner biologist. And so I am based out of Grass Valley in the Natural Resources Conservation Service field office, which is under the USGA. And my main role or a significant portion of my work is centered on technical assistance, um, focused on conservation and program delivery, planning through farm bill programs. And um, I work closely with farmers, ranchers, forest landowners um, to do conservation planning on private lands within Nevada and Sierra counties. I also, through Point Blue, we do a lot of monitoring and data collection. And one specific 
network is called the Rangeland Monitoring Network, where um, the primary goal is to preserve the ecological value of rangelands and recommend conservation actions that enhance their function for both people and wildlife. Um, within the network, we have over 500 unique locations and on over 100 ranches across California. And at each of these sites, we're collecting data on soil, vegetation, and birds. And then I also, part of my work is, um, well, all of my work is tied to partnerships and um, working and collaborating with other groups, other individuals in the conservation realm to um, to strengthen and uh, preserve ecological function on pre predominantly private lands, but also we work with some public land partners. So, gosh, there's so much that I would love to, that we will dig into there, which is very exciting. Uh, you mentioned that you look at bird soil and vegetation um, as indicators of ecosystem health. And I'm curious when you do that, what specifically are you looking at? Yeah, so um, birds are indicator species of ecological function. Um, we've all probably heard the saying canary in a coal mine, right? Mm-hmm. Have you guys heard that? Okay, cool. Um, but yeah, so so I I, I don't want to go into the weeds, and this might be obvious, but um, yeah, so birds are, can be more sensitive to minor changes in in the ecosystem. So the canary in the coal mine example, canaries are highly sensitive to gases like carbon monoxide and methane. So if the birds Start, so miners would actually take a canary down with them into the mine shafts, and if they started to show signs of poisoning or um, or stress, then the miners knew that there was some kind of toxic gas in in the mine shaft and to get out. So if you apply that example at a larger scale, birds can tell us a lot about the health of that ecosystem. And their presence or absence and their abundance and diversity um, can tell us what might be missing or um, certain ha habitat attributes. And we can track those changes over time and see if it, and, and ideally correlate that to um, management and, and see how those lands are being managed and how we can um, intentionally improve habitat. Um, and then for the soil in vegetation, for soil, we measure soil organic carbon at two different depths, at zero to 10 centimeters and also 10 to 40 centimeters. We also measure bulk density, which is um, used for uh, trying to see how compacted the soils are, and then also um, water infiltration, which is also another metric for, for soil compaction. Mandy, why do you measure soil at those specific depths? Um, that's a great question. I think when the monitoring protocols were first developed, we uh, looked at some other common um, existing 
data networks out there, but uh, the basic is, uh, so the zero to 10 is, is typically like your, your top soil and your O and A horizons. Um, so management that's happening, like if you might be doing a rangeland feeding or um, doing certain types of pres prescribed grazing, you might expect a change more quickly in that top uh, layer of the soil. And then the 10 to 40, we can track changes in soil organic carbon and, and things like a riparian planting or tree and shrub planting or even some perennial grass plantings like we would hope to see more soil organic carbon at those depths with the root development and and growth and and the microbial community changes over time um, but most frequently we would think the zero to ten would have the greatest change in, in soil organic carbon um, at a shorter time time scale does that make sense yes it does um I probably should just be quiet and listen, but why do we care about soil organic carbon? <laughs> <laughs> no, there's there there. I don't think you should be quiet. All these questions are good. Um, so soil organic carbon, uh, carbon sequestration is kind of a bug buzzword right now, um, and that is something that. Uh, there's a lot of capacity and and promise on especially rangelands. And in California, rangelands occupy over 50% of the land and of the, that 50%, approximately half are privately owned. So, so the potential for sequestering more carbon on these lands is significant. And I can't speak for the rest of the country, but um, if we talk about the North American Grasslands Act later, I know that a big piece of that is um, an intention for increased carbon sequestration on grasslands um, and grazing is the primary land use or primary management practice on a lot of these these lands. So there is a lot of potential for increasing soil organic carbon through simple changes, whether it's changing in, in grazing management or trying to reduce invasive species or um, increase riparian cover. Some, some pretty simple changes can result in, in greater, um, greater carbon sequestration and, and taking carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it in the soil. That's so interesting. And yeah, I think when anybody who's uh, delved into kind of solutions um, for climate change or proposed solutions for climate change has heard um, carbon sequestration, because you, like you said, it is a buzzword um, and it, it plays a role in the Grasslands Act. It plays a role in forest health and fire management. And so I think um, it's a really important concept to dig into when we are talking about climate change and climate solutions. So my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> is that uh, like if a like native habitat, so in healthy rangeland, uh, will absorb more carbon than a landscape that is full of invasive species. So technically, when you're doing these soil samples, you want a higher carbon content. Is that right? Yes, yes, absolutely. We want to see our soil organic carbon go up over time, ideally. Um, yeah, yeah, we want to see, see these 
the rangeland, rangeland, forest lands, we want to see them as banks, as sinks, not sources of carbon in, in a perfect world. Um, but I do want to, to mention a disclaimer that soil type does play a huge role in the potential for sequestering carbon. So not all soils are have equal capacity for sequestering carbon. But we, if we are able to increase organic matter through planting, through leaving more biomass at the end of the grazing season, through, through pretty simple um, management, we can um, help speed up uh, the capacity for putting carbon back into the soil. It's fascinating. Um, and you, you delved into it briefly, but I would love to address it explicitly um, just for listeners who are diving into this topic um, for the first time or at the beginning of their knowledge. Uh, what is carbon sequestration? Yeah, so... Um, Carbon sequestration is basically taking carbon from the air and sequestering it into a um, typically a, a plant form, but also microbes play a huge role in, in soil, um, but basically tying it up so that it's not um, part of the greenhouse gas picture. Um, so, so that's, that's the idea. I, should probably look up a more scientific. <laughs> no, that's, that's perfect. I think it's yeah. I think it's perfect to not frame it in science sometimes because if it's uh, sometimes it goes over my head. So lay terms are, are good. And I liked you said um, it's a sink, not a source. Is that the phrase that you used? Yeah, yeah. We want thing our our soils to be sponges. Yeah, to soak up carbon. Uh, yeah, sink so that it. It's not, is not emitting carbon. Um, yes. Very cool. Ashley, any more so questions about soil? I could go I, on for hours about soil because. I could do. Nerd. I used to be a soil science major my freshman year of college. Didn't um, know that about you. You were. That's awesome. Yeah. I actually also was um, the sixth generation on my family farm and so I definitely identify with you when you talked about that. And that was when I, my dad said, you have to go to college. And I was like, yeah, what am I going to go to college for? I was like, I want to be outside. Crop and soil science. Well, obviously things changed a little bit. But in the beginning, I learned about soils. And I just really appreciate the point that you made about some soils having an inherently higher capacity to facilitate carbon sequestration, because I think when we're talking about climate change and we're talking about anything in our world today that requires some sort of action, I feel like people like to come up with blanket advice or like blanket solutions. And I, I would love to hear your take on this, Maddie, but I feel like we really need to think critically about individual situations when we're talking about what can be done. Absolutely. I am so glad you you made those comments. Um, it's tough because yeah, every, every site is different. Um, and historical management is different, but yeah, just, um, 
without getting too nerdy, but yeah, so there's different types of soils, clay soils, silty soils, sandy soils, um, and, and they absolutely have different capacities for what types of nutrients um, and pore spaces they have and, and so, so how, how they can hold onto carbon and what can grow there. And um, yeah, so we do need to acknowledge that and then use that as, um, so, so working with the Natural Resources Conservation Service, one of the first things we do for a client is to um, produce a soil map and, and know what types of soils are out there and, and at least look and see what can grow and what should be expected. So um, I don't know if you guys have talked about like ecological site descriptions on this podcast. Nope, not yet. Do it. Let's go there. <laughs> oh gosh, I, 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 I don't know that I'm the right person for that. But um, yeah, so there, there's these state and transition models where different types of disturbances um, across different ecosystems have expected you you have expected shifts in in structure and plant communities um and so these ecological site descriptions have been developed for many lands across the united states not all lands um and and the nrcs and and other groups use these ecological site descriptions to um kind of frame the capacity for what what these lands are historically and like expected to be able to grow um and 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 water and hydrology types of functions as well um so yeah we we definitely i agree with you ashley we can't say like oh we need to you know sequester this amount of tons per acre across this entire region because there is so much variability um within within a ranch, within a county, within a state. Um, yeah, and, and so uh, not over-promising what we can, what certain lands can do and produce and, and sequester, I think is really important. And one thing we found across the Rangeland Monitoring Network is um, Although management was changing and becoming more regenerative and, and focused on soil health, there was a dip in soil carbon and it was likely tied to the drought. Um, so so even, even if we give it our best shot sometimes, it's not going to be enough. That's so interesting. Yeah. yeah. So even if it's a even if it's a very healthy um like diverse ecosystem if it's not if it's not if it doesn't have water in it it's a absorption capacity for carbon is limited yes yeah yeah and and i think a lot of these the processes going on are more complex than what we know um more more knowledgeable and intelligent people know more than I do but um I think a lot of what's happening is still beyond our grasp right and so cyclical right because 
uh, in like when you have the drought that is that exceeds what's considered maybe a, a natural cycle of drought, then the health of the ecosystem is degraded because you know the plants die off and the native plants aren't as healthy. Um, and then it, it just it's just this huge like domino effect. It sounds like of interconnectedness. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It, it, it totally is. I, I mean, I'm sure everyone's heard of, and I mean, the whole West every summer is under intense stress of these now mega fires. Um, and it's not, we can't, it's, it's a cascade effect. So it's absolutely tied to climate change, but it's also tied to forest management. Um, it's also tied to, uh, yeah, drought, which is connected to climate change. So in, in California between 2014 and 2017, um, the Sierra Nevadas lost nearly uh, on average across four forests, 50% of their trees <laughs> to, um, bark beetle drought and then that created a situation that was just catastrophic in terms of wildfire potential and um the, sure enough the fires came and then that's more carbon being released into the atmosphere so yeah it's it's definitely in a bit of a positive feedback loop right now on some of these systems so i'm curious uh Oh God, again, with like the million questions I have and, and the challenge of deciding which one to pick. Um, I guess I'm, I'm curious uh, about the work that you do with private landowners um, and would love to talk a little bit about that because I think, like you mentioned, you know, a huge portion of the rangeland in California is privately owned. And so when we talk about um, climate solutions, particularly with the work that Artemis does as a part of our work in the public lands team at the National Wildlife Federation, oftentimes we focus on uh, Bureau of Land Management lands and and Forest Service lands and state lands, which play a crucial role in climate solutions. Uh, But we won't be able to make a move without the commitment um, and efforts that private landowners um, make to, to their lands as well. And so I'd love to hear about that work and kind of some of the solutions that you um, are that, that these ranch owners are engaged in. Yes, this is. I'm glad we we're talking about this. So, uh, a lot of my time is spent working with uh, ranchers, farmers, forest managers, and landowners um, to pr- promote, plan, and enable conservation practices. Sometimes it's in like a technical capacity where they have questions about how to um, the science behind what what they should do to to reach their goals or objectives, whether it's increasing forage production or sequestering more carbon. And and a lot of a lot of those things are tied together. Soil health is tied to land health is tied to animal health. Um, which a lot of a lot of most producers recognize those linkages, but um, yeah. So working with on private lands, 
one of the main programs that exists that helps um, elevate and escalate conservation implementation practice implementation is is called equip have you guys talked about equip before no eqip okay yeah it's so it's a it's a federal program and it's funded through the 2018 farm bill um and it stands for equip stands for environmental quality incentives program and it's a cost share incentive program that anyone with land or you don't even have to own land you can lease land can apply for this um, as long as there's some sort of resource concern that you're trying to address whether it's water quality soil health reducing erosion increasing plant productivity and health um, improving animal health improving wildlife habitat all of those things are there's there's probably two dozen different resource concerns included um, but as long as it's resulting in a positive environmental impact, um, we can do a conservation plan and request funding to help get these practices implemented on private land. So what the practices look like varies by each project, but we can fund things from um, hedgerows for pollinators, range planting to um, reduce invasive species and, and encourage perennials and natives. We can do riparian restoration projects, um, forest thinning projects, uh, water infrastructure for ranches, um, which are also beneficial to wildlife because they might um, be the only source of water in a remote portion of a ranch. Um, we can do, yeah, wildlife structures, some, you know, nesting boxes, raptor perches. So, so there's, there's an abundance of different practices, um, that we can utilize to help achieve the conservation goals. Um, and that's just one program. Like there's multiple, there's another one called the conservation stewardship program, which is, um, more geared towards people that are are already like very much in the sustainable agriculture realm and they just want to like up their game a little bit um and then there's also right now the application period's open i don't know it'll still probably be open by the time this comes out i hope um it closes in in mid-february but um there's the california department of food and agriculture healthy soils program which um, helps fund compost application range planting, um, a, a handful of other very soil health focused practices. So there's a lot of funding currently available for private landowners to get um, this positive conservation work done. And even if they don't want any sort of financial assistance, we can provide technical assistance. And then nice. if they're interested, also there's opportunity for data collection as well. That's super cool. Sounds like an amazing resource. Um, I, I thank you for delving into that because I don't think we talk about the, the, that role in, in conservation often enough. And, and as you guys both know, as generations of, um, farmers and ranchers, the connection that, um, people who work the land have to the land into that place uh, is, is deep and, we need to talk more about what they do to care for it. Um, but I want to go back to birds. <laughs> birds. 
birds. Um, uh, and birds as indicator species. And I, I would love to hear, I, 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 birds are amazing. I just love birds. Um, and I think keeping an eye on them, like uh, one of the key species that Artemis started off with when we launched in 2017 was um, sagebrush and, or sorry, was sage grouse and really paying attention to the sage grouse as an indicator species for the ecosystem health of the sagebrush here in the West and um, what the health of that habitat meant for mule deer. Again, just to talk about the interconnectedness of it, if this bird species that relies on such uh, delicate and intimate nuances in the landscape is struggling, then that will eventually make its way up to the larger game species. Uh, and so I think that connection is just fascinating. And I would love to hear what birds you look at and kind of what changes you've noticed in the recent past. Yeah. Great segue. Um, yeah. So we look at all the birds, all the birds matter. <laughs> all the birds matter. Yes. Um, yeah. So in our monitoring, and I am speaking specifically for the working lands and rangeland monitoring network. So there's a lot of different efforts out there. So this one's pretty specific but um yeah we we do what's called point counts and we go to a predetermined but random like it's it's randomly selected um location and um for five minutes we listen and look and count all the birds within 300 meters of that point and of course we have binoculars and a rangefinder. um and yeah, we record them. Um, but I do want to say that there are focal species for different types of habitat that uh, we utilized to um, sort of gauge that the health of that ecosystem. So we have developed focal species for grasslands, oak woodlands, sagebrush habitat, um, mountain meadows coniferous forest, riparian areas. So we have, there are certain species that their presence or absence can tell us something about what's happening there. So a super basic example is quail. If we are at a ranch and there's not much quail, that typically means there's um, very little brush layer or, or um, brush piles around. So we might recommend to the landowner like, hey, even though that oak fell down and you want to clean it up and utilize it for firewood maybe you could cut up some of the limbs and leave it as a brush pile for quail and um, we have seen changes over time and seen quail on some properties increase by making those types of recommendations um, yeah and and point blue does have these uh, focal species lists on our website um, if anybody wants to check them out. Very cool. Does that does that make sense or did I go off the yeah. intent of the question? No, that makes a lot of sense. Um and I had an image of sitting next to you and counting birds and it was pleasant. Um <laughs> do you have a favorite? Do you have a favorite bird? Do I have a favorite bird? Oh my gosh. I I 
I will come up with a favorite bird. I love all the birds. Um, I I really like white-breasted nuthatches because mm-hmm. there's quite a few here and they remind me of little honking horns and they are funny little birds that kind of like are sideways on the tree. Um, yeah, I like white-breasted nuthatches. I love nuthatches. And I think, isn't the nuthatch, and I'm not sure if it's a very, if it's a specific species of nuthatch, but aren't they the only birds that can walk down a tree? I, yes, I think you're right. <laughs> I love that fact. Yes. So if you see a bird walking head first down a tree trunk, it's probably a nuthatch. Um, so going back to some, what are some changes you've seen in the last decade when you're looking at the birds, the soil and the vegetation as indicators of ecosystem health? Yeah, in the last decade, um, there, there's been a decline in a lot of species, a lot of bird species, especially grassland birds um, and in California over 90% of uh, wetlands have been destroyed or modified. One of the biggest um, threats of habitat loss is development in California. Um, But yeah, we, we have seen, I don't have data in front of me and I know that someone much more knowledgeable than I am um, would be able to rattle off specific numbers on specific species but um, yeah I know a lot of our our wetland dependent birds are on the decline and a lot of our grassland birds are struggling Um, and and then on the soils and vegetation side of things soils it's again super variable um across the rangeland monitoring network um on some sites we're seeing increases in soil organic carbon and decreases in soil compaction which is really good um in some areas we're not seeing that um but we're working we're we continue like that's why we do this work is is to continue to have hope and to continue to try to make changes and, and have, have actionable, um, you know, at least motivation to, to creating action to, to help. Um, and then on, on the veg side, yeah, lots of increases in invasive species, um, unfortunately, but we are, that's, um, there's a lot of momentum behind restoration projects right now. So there's funding and interest in restoring a lot of habitats that have been degraded either through management or through, um, through changes and expansion of invasive species. Um, And then in forested ecosystems, fire suppression and, lack of disturbance has actually created um, excessive fuel loads. So we are seeing these mega fires and um, yeah, we're, we're having some challenges there, but um, all hope is not lost. 
there again is momentum in doing a lot of forest health work and post fire restoration and fire is a disturbance a natural disturbance and these landscapes are mostly fire adapted so i'm hopeful that um that and 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 a plus side to these fires which i mean are absolutely devastating is that some bird populations are responding really well like <laughs> all of our woodpeckers are doing great right now <laughs> i love woodpeckers i have a woodpecker named petra who likes my apple tree a lot okay i just have to say i was thinking before when you mentioned that about nut hatches walking down a tree there's got to be a woodpecker that can do that too maddie you would know i probably should know <laughs> um, <laughs> I should know too. anyway I... maybe not we'll fact check that one yeah, we'll fact check that one. And listeners, I know you got we've got some birders out there, but my I'm pretty sure like they can go sideways and they can and they obviously go up. But like if you watch a nuthatch, they will walk down the trunk of a tree head first. Yeah, well, I think it's because of their it's their toe arrangement, right? Like they're too forward, too backward. Probably. I, don't, I think that's like zydactyl or I don't remember what. Yeah, you're you're out of my <laughs> knowledge frame right now. <laughs> But I think that woodpeckers, there are some woodpeckers that have something. Anyway, this is a tangent. I'm going to figure it out. Okay. <laughs> we'll get back to you on that important question. Um, so I know, like, uh, so a huge part of what Artemis does is encourage uh, sportswomen to get actively involved in uh, conservation advocacy. And, you know, sometimes that means uh, speaking at a committee hearing and advocating for the passing of a bill and speaking on specific policy issues. And sometimes it's the ethic that we carry with us into the field uh, and how we interact with the landscape. And so I'm curious, especially talking about invasive species, um, what are, do you have some field-based practices or tips that you pass on to hunters and anglers when they're out in the field on how best to protect the, the rangeland and the landscape that you work closely with. I am so glad you brought this question up. Yes. Um, so humans are the primary vector of invasive species, which I'm sure we all know, but yeah, we are the ones that are spreading these little seeds around. Um, and so, to fellow hunters and conservationists, I would encourage you to check your gear, check your clothing, check your tires um, when you travel from place to place. Um, I, I, because th th there's a reason invasive species are invasive. The the seeds like they tend to be spiky. They tend to be have ons that climb up your pants and. And yeah, they like to latch onto things. So um, yeah, one super basic thing is like every time you go into the field, like make sure that you are not taking any kind of seed out with you um, in whatever form. And then something else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything you want to add, Ashley, to that? Or, I was going to add comb your hunting dog. For, for the yes. environment's sake and for your wallet's sake because if you have a dog if you have a dog like I do a grass seed with a long on can get 
stuck in his hair, migrate through his skin and down into the muscle in between his ribs and require not one, but two surgeries to remove the foreign objects. Says the voice of experience. Yes, there are multiple reasons. Oh my goodness. Um, I think that's, I I, I appreciate that point. And I think it's one that um, hunters are becoming more and more aware of. Anglers, I think, have been aware of it longer, mostly because of regulations in place uh, for boat checks. And then, you know, there's in the fly fishing community, there's conversation about uh, washing your gear when you switch watersheds to make sure that you're not transferring invasive muscles. Um, And it's something that the hunting community is becoming more and more aware of and something that I'm trying to practice, right? Like when you come out of the field, you do that car check to make sure um, that you leave or that you, you know, you don't transport the seeds that have attached themselves to you and your boots from one situation to the other. And I was looking at my hunting boots the other day, which are covered in mud, because of course I was out in the mud. And like, it's not in my practice yet to like wash those off before I go hunting again, but it needs to be. Um, and I think especially I know in Montana, we've got um, the block management program, which is a partnership with private landowners where hunters have access to hunt their property um, in re- in return for uh, tax incentives and, and different incentives provided by the state. And a lot of the landowners are talking a lot more vocally about that respect and requirement too, particularly if, if hunters are driving onto their land. Like just be really cognizant of what you're bringing in with you. Uh, and, and I think incorporating the practice of really doing a solid gear check after a hunt um, is one of the biggest things that we can do to help not be that vector that you mentioned. Yes, yes, absolutely. And they, well, and what's amazing about hunters is we are so motivated sometimes to go way out in the backcountry. So the potential for introducing these invasive species in these pretty pristine landscapes is is tie. So um, I think we have an even more important responsibility to be really aware of, um, which I mean, luckily most hunters are somewhat of naturalists as it is. So yep. yeah, just um, be aware of, of, of plants that might be hitchhikers on your, on your gear um, and animals and animals <laughs> and vehicles. And yeah. Can we also just, yeah talk about how I mean we talk about restoration obviously ecosystem restoration is super important but something something can't be undone (laughs) she's here um like there's a lot of specifically non-native invasive plants that with all the best efforts we still can't get rid of right like there's no they're never going to really be gone yeah yeah eradication is not realistic for a lot of these you're absolutely right that's but a curious we could go ahead oh i was just gonna say but we can reduce the frequency and abundance in places and and increase diversity um because a lot of it is like yeah you're you're totally right we're never gonna get rid of like for here like in my hometown we have a ton of scotch broom um and a lot of medusa head and barbed goat grass on on our rangelands and and those are plants that are never going to leave the landscape in california but we can do things to try to reduce the how how many 
plants there are and and the monocultures that they create and try to incorporate more diversity into into those areas. Yeah, just make sure that the the native plants have a fighting chance. Yes. Yeah, yeah, what are some of the plants that you guys are dealing with in like what are oh, the gosh. the top top five issues <laughs> in yeah. Tennessee and Montana, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah. There's a laundry list. One of the one of the plants here that's a real bummer here in, in Kentucky too is Cerisia lespidiza. It's a it's a plant that they actually use to reclaim a lot of old mine sites. Um, so it was put out with good intentions, and they thought that it would be good quail food because um, it has a seed that quail really like to eat, but they actually can't digest it. So they die. Yeah. <laughs> they starve to death. Wow. Um, after filling themselves up on that. So, yeah, that's, that's one of the ones that's rough over this way. Uh, and cheatgrass is definitely the biggest issue here in Montana. We have a lot of knapweed as well, but I think cheatgrass is the one that's, that's the most problematic. Um, so, so thank you. I think those tips are, are, are really helpful, um, and, and great ethic that we can carry with us into the field, um, in, in the practices and how we, uh, interact with the land. Um, and you also mentioned the North American Grasslands Act earlier in the podcast, and I'm curious how that intersects with the work that you do. Yes. Um, so the North American Grasslands Act, from my understanding, again, definitely not an expert, but um, the primary goal is to restore and conserve grasslands and sagebrush uh, habitat, and, and specifically by raising 500 million to conserve 9 million acres. And Marsha, jump in to um, correct me. Um, and, and most of this land is, is centered in the middle third of the country. Um, but yeah, we've lost around 50 million acres of grassland habitat in the last decade. And as a result, there's significant declines in species, and especially some game species, pheasant, bobwhite quail, um, tons of different birds that depend on grasslands. Um, yeah, so we, there, we've seen huge declines in their numbers over just a blip in, in time over the last several decades, which, which, is, which is scary. <laughs> we, yeah. we don't want to lose these, these animals. So um, yeah, there's, I think the National Wildlife Federation is one of the endorsers of the North American Grasslands Act, right? Absolutely. Yep. Um, one, yeah, one of the early spearheaders of the of the act, um, and now it's a coalition of of conservation organizations from across the country. Yeah, and I think it's cool because this act is modeled after the really popular and really effective North American Wetland Conservation Act, um, and the hope is that uh, the Grasslands Act will really kickstart the protection and restoration of grasslands and the livelihoods of the and wildlife that depend on them, um, in the same way that the Wetland Conservation Act did. Um, and it is, I, yeah, I think, gosh, like seventy percent of America's grasslands have vanished um and then if you incorporate 
sagebrush step into that as well. We lose about 1.2 million acres of sagebrush burn each year due to just like the invasive grasses that fuel the huge wildfires that just rip through this landscape. Uh, and so, like you said, this this landscape is really in trouble um, right now and, and that wildlife and the game species that, that we hunt, like you mentioned, upland birds um, that thrive in that landscape are really in a quick decline. So this North American Grasslands Conservation Act is um, a, can be a huge contributor to the solution. And I don't want to go too deeply into it, but I encourage everybody to look more specifically at the details and to talk to your uh, congressional representatives and encourage them to pass it. If you want more information, you can go to um, it's uh, actforgrasslands.org, act4grasslands.org. So, so we got some you know, some in the field conservation habits, and we've got some policy conservation acts that people can um, can look into in order to to make a difference. Um, and I think and, that's a go ahead. Sorry, and some free money for landowners out there who are looking to <laughs> make some, free make money. Some, yeah, free money if you want to make some changes. And I think. Mandy, correct me if I'm wrong, but the EQIP program, I don't know what the acreage restrictions are, but you don't have to own a ranch to qualify for it. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. It, you don't. Um, no. You don't. Yeah. It can be. Yeah. Woodlands. Um, yeah. You can just be interested in wildlife habitat. It doesn't necessarily, you don't have to have an agricultural commodity to qualify. Very cool. Um, this seems like a yeah. good spot to take a quick break to hear from the NWF Outdoors podcast. We will be right back. Howdy, Artemis listeners. This is Aaron Kindle from NWF Outdoors. We know you love awesome conservation conversations. That's why we want to invite you to check out the NWF Outdoors podcast, where we dive deep into the issues, people, and places that showcase the best of the sporting conservation lifestyle. Guests include leaders, luminaries, and decision makers who define conservation and work tirelessly for fish and wildlife. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts or at nwfoutdoors.org. South Dakota is expanding pheasant hunting's horizons and giving sportswomen a greater voice in the field. The connection to nature, the adrenaline of the hunt, the satisfaction of eating the game you harvest. Hunting is our shared legacy. Everyone is welcome to enjoy it. Go to HuntTheGreatestSD.com to hear stories from women who hunt and learn what makes South Dakota the world's pheasant capital. That's HuntTheGreatestSD.com. South Dakota, sportswomen welcome. All right, welcome back. Maddie, is there anything else that you wanted to be sure to mention that we haven't talked about already? Going back to your question about what people can do, what conservationists can do, I did want to mention if people are really into, into citizen science, there's lots of opportunities where you can contribute to these bigger data sets on what you're seeing in the field, whether it's birds, plants, um, yeah, trends. Um, like some really popular and easy to use apps include iNaturalist, eBird. There's the great 
backyard bird count every year. There's tons of different birdathons. Um, so if you want to actually participate in being part of these these um, these data collections, I think there's lo- there's lots of opportunities. Um, and then also, I just want to put a plug in. You can support nonprofits that are doing a lot of this work. So. Yeah. <laughs> and and there's multiple ways. It doesn't have to be a financial contribution. Even just volunteering your time is, is appreciated. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I just wanted yeah. to add those two things beyond checking yourself for weed seed. <laughs> That's perfect. No, I appreciate yeah. that. And because I think a huge part of um, the, like, a lot of this work is... Um, sweat equity, right? Like it's, it's people on the landscape working hard, uh, to, to restore and make changes and, um, push back some of the impacts. And, and, and so that requires a lot of volunteer labor and it's also just really fun. I mean, you'd be surprised how fun a fence removal project can be when you get out there with the right people. Yes, totally. Yeah. There's there you don't always have to be hunting to be in the field. There's there's so many opportunities to be in the field doing good work um, that support wildlife populations. Uh, Ashley, any burning questions? Oh. Charlie, any burning questions? <laughs> I don't. I guess what I the question I would have for Maddie is for somebody who works in this every day and faces the effects of climate change head on what do you how do you maintain hope and like what do you see as the the bright light of the future Mm, it's hard it comes in ways (laughs) no um yeah yeah you have to have hope if I mean without hope I, I mean you being a mother holding your baby right now like I know that you're probably thinking about what her future will look like and, and the world and environment that she's going to have growing up. And we all want the same opportunity or even better opportunities than what, what we've had. Um, what gives me hope is, um, is, is there is a lot of momentum and, um, and, I guess, spotlight on taking aggressive and progressive action right now. Um, so, so there is a lot of money for private lands to make significant changes and also public lands through efforts like the North American Grasslands Act and the 30 by 30. So I think that we are in a a pivoting point where um, we can make changes um, and hopefully in time, in enough time. Yeah. Yeah. So I I think that they're, they're seeing things happen on the ground, seeing landowners uh, have these shifts and like reprioritization in California, after the campfire, we had a flood of interest in forest health projects by private landowners in California. So sometimes these really devastating, horrific um, events are catalysts for rapid 
change. Um, and so, so what gives me hope is, is seeing change implemented on the ground and seeing and learning from folks like you that are, that are doing this work in your own communities as well. And just seeing it all ripple out to scale. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that, that is, is the hope message that you were hoping for. Maybe you have, you both have your own versions of hope that you want to share. I mean, I, I oscillate probably like a lot of people between being despondent about the situation and then really feeling like there's something I can sink my teeth into, like, um, you know, big acts like the Wetlands Restoration Act and the Grassland, Grasslands Restoration Act, things that are happening out there. I'm like, okay, somebody else cares. Something good is going to happen, you know, and kind of put some juice behind that. So, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a balancing act probably. Yeah. And I'm with you, Maddie. I think um, there is, I think especially in being embedded in the conservation community and just seeing the passion and the action and the commitment is uh, you can't help but be hopeful um, about the momentum that's building and what we are capable of um, when we really dedicate ourselves to change. Yeah. Maddie, yeah. thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate digging into this and um, I'm grateful for your time and your knowledge. Yeah, thanks, Maddie. Yeah. Thank you both. Thanks for the wonderful questions and engaging conversation. It's been really fun to, to talk with you guys about some pretty big stuff. Um, yeah. And, and, and hopefully I, I look forward to seeing you someday. Hopefully that would be cool. That, that would be <laughs> Whether cool. Whether it's virtually hey. or, or in person. Caribou hunt in Alaska. Let's go team. Deal. Yeah. <laughs> I'm there. Excellent. Well, I look forward to, to talking with you soon. Okay. Uh, awesome. Thank you, Marcia. Thank you, Ashley. And to our listeners, thank you so much for listening. If this podcast has meant something to you, please consider leaving us a review or forwarding it to a friend. Those things matter in helping us build our community and helping us keep the show on the air. So thank you so much. And as you all know, hunters and anglers have a history as leaders in conservation. Uh, it's really time for us to step up and to tell the stories of what we are seeing in the field and use our voices to advocate for our land's waters and wildlife in the face of climate change. I encourage everyone to check out the Hunters and Anglers Guide to Climate Change that was recently published by NWF Outdoors. This guide takes a look at ecosystems across the country, paints a picture of how these landscapes matter to hunters and anglers, and talks about how climate change is impacting them. And then it talks about solutions, both boots on the ground work and policy opportunities, um, solutions that we can really dig into and solutions that will have an impact on the future. Uh, it's an effort to shift our focus from something needs to be done to let's get it done. And you can find that guide at artemis.nwf.org. Thanks for joining us this week on the Artemis podcast. Until next time, be bold, stay curious, and get outside.
Thank mm-hmm. you.